We are closing out our series this morning that we have titled Reconciled uh, in Christ and with each other. And by way of review, we have been, for the past several weeks, five plus weeks, um, we have been working our way through this series, uh, really at one point building up to our um, repentance and restoration service that we had on January 23rd. Uh, and then coming out of that, kind of fleshing out the specific covenant statements that the leadership uh, shared with all of you that we invited you all to covenant with us to go forward living differently, interacting differently with each other here at Summit Ridge Community Church. And so this morning we are coming to the last of that covenant statement. It had four parts to it. And today we are going to look at the fourth part of that covenant statement. And the fourth statement or the fourth part of that statement says the following, and it's this, to serve one another by following the example of Jesus Christ, ensuring others are seen, heard, and cared for as deeply valued members of God's family and this church. That is the fourth part of this covenant that the leadership has invited all of us to covenant with them as we seek to live differently. And we have been spending these past several weeks fleshing out these covenant statements. What do they mean? What do they look like? And, and obviously there is not enough, there's not enough time to fully flesh out each statement. So what we have been doing, or mainly me, um, has been trying to flesh out, at least in one specific way, how this could look or what this does look like. And so today, in that spirit, that's what I will be doing today. And so what is so interesting about this statement is that perhaps out of any of the other statements that we have shared, this statement, in my opinion, speaks to the heartbeat of this church, speaks to the pulse of this church, it speaks to what we as Summit Ridge Community Church are all about. Our mission statement, and I have shared this, I don't know how many times, many, 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 many times, our mission statement here at Summit Ridge Community Church is this, to make disciples who what? Serve Christ by serving people. That is why we as a church exist, is to make disciples who serve Christ by serving people. We believe in this so much that out in our patio area, we have etched on copper, and yes, that is real copper out there, we have etched on copper, our mission statement is out there, or the last part of that mission statement, to serve Christ by serving others. To serve Christ by serving others. This is, in many ways, the heartbeat of Summit Ridge Community Church, and that's why I think this this covenant statement is so crucial because this is who we have decided, this is what we have believed that God wants us to be as a church, is to be people who are serving others as we seek to serve Him. So that's why this is so important. Now, not only that, um, Jesus Himself said essentially His mission in life was to serve. Mark chapter 10, verse 45 says this, and these are Jesus' words. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
Let me say that again. This is Jesus, the Savior of the world, the, the, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Creator of all. He said that His purpose was not to come and to be served, but rather to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. I love the context in which this verse is in. You see, the context in which Jesus speaks these words were the context in which James and John, depending upon, in this case, Mark, there are other cases in the Gospels outside of Mark that share a little bit different, but nonetheless, in this case, James and John comes, come to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, man, we love you. We think you're awesome. We think you're great. We've given our lives to you. Yeah, we want to sit at your right and left hand. We want to be in positions of power. Now, the other Gospels, or one other, they share that James and John's mother came to Jesus, Right? In this case, Mark, say, or Mark says, hey, guess what? James and John went to Jesus and asked for this. These are positions of power, right? Right and left hand, positions of power. And, and out of that, as a result of that, the other disciples became very, very, very angry as a result of what they did. Why? Is it because they thought it was inappropriate? Perhaps. But more likely, they thought he beat, he beat, they beat us to it. We wanted those positions. We wanted those positions. We wanted those positions. There is, there is nothing that maybe can help cause people to be absolute, um, I don't know for a better word to say this, kiss-ups, than when they want to be near power. Than when they want to be near power. And James and John recognized Jesus was power. He had authority. He had power. And, and, and brothers and sisters, hear me on this when I say this, is that in reading about evangelical Christians, and it was interesting, Chuck Colson, who has since gone on, passed on, he was, um, worked for the Nixon administration. He was the uh, White House counsel. He went to jail, and out of that started prison fellowship, had a tremendous influence on evangelical Christianity. And he was there at the pinnacle of power in the White House, next to the president. And he said this, he made this observation, which was very, very telling. He said, we have all sorts of groups of people come in to the White House. And there is, there is something to be said about going to the White House. It is an awesome, awesome place to be able to go to the White House. It truly is. Uh, I, my family and I, we went to DC a few years ago. We got to go to the White House, go into the White House and tour the White House. And it was awesome. It was awesome. I mean, it was great to be able to go through all that secret service, all of that. I mean, just tells you, you're going into a very special place. And it was awesome. I, I can look at the stuff and say, I was in that room. I can look out there. There's, yeah, I was in that room. I saw that room. By the way, it's not as impressive as you might think. It's small. It's smaller than you think, right? And, and I think that's intentional because we didn't elect a king. The president doesn't live in a castle, he lives in a house. I love that. But nonetheless, Chuck Colson said we would bring these groups of people in and we would, we would just, you know, hear from them and wine and dine them and all that kind of stuff. But he said this, the most group, the, the group that was in most awe of being there, that was most taken in by the power and the privilege and all that, were the evangelical Christians. There is, there is a danger in that. James and John highlight perhaps the danger of 
the fact that we want this power, that we want to be near this power. And what Jesus does is so unbelievable. It is so different. And he says, yeah, guess what? You want to be in seats of power? I'm going to invert this whole thing. You're going to have to serve. Oh, uh, you're going to have to be last instead of first. You're going to have to be the lowest of the lowest because that's what I'm all about. That's what I am all about. What pains me in churches, particularly, and I'm only, I have I've, the most experience in evangelical churches, is when I see pastors, leaders abuse their power. Abuse their power for their own benefit at the expense of those to whom they have been called to serve and to guide and to shepherd, to use their own power in a way that benefits themselves. That is heartbreaking. And we are beginning to see and have begun to see and are experiencing some of the fallout from that in evangelical churches, churches that have been incredibly influential, churches that have been incredibly well-known, only to find out that in many ways the leadership was incredible incredibly unhealthy because they were so and unbeknownst i don't think they started out that way but it became that way they were they were just all about power and jesus says yeah i'm going to invert that and we see examples throughout the new testament of all of this about serving others regardless i think of the good samaritan and i think of that samaritan he's called the good samaritan by the way that was never a title that you would, or an adjective that you would place for a Samaritan was good, right? I mean, it was just, it was just not what you would put there. It's just not how that worked. And yet, we know that story as the good Samaritan. Why was he a good Samaritan? In fact, now it's ubiquitous with the fact of helping others. That's how much Jesus has changed this is that we now look at the Good Samaritan as a good thing, as a thing to strive for, to be like, because that Good Samaritan helped when no one else wanted to help. He served regardless of what others might think of the fact that this Samaritan was helping a Jew. He didn't care. The person needed help, I'm going to help. Martin Luther King Jr., I think, has a wonderful aspect of this parable, and he says this. He says, the first question which the priest and the Levite, which by the way, were the first two people who walked past this guy who was in trouble. They walked on the other side of the road. Now, there's understandableness as to that. That should not be surprising. They could not, they, if they helped, they would have been declared unclean and could not go to work. But nonetheless, the first question which the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But the good Samaritan reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? I love that. Serving is so essential to the Christian life, and, and it's not missed on those who have gone before us who have had tremendous influence on us as Christians. I look at John Bunyan, which, by the way, I've told you, encouraged you before. I'm going to encourage you again. Read things by dead people. John Bunyan is dead. He wrote a wonderful classic called The Pilgrim's Progress, which is a beautiful, beautiful story of the Christian life. You have to read this book. If I can just please, please, please read this book. It's wonderful. And he said this, you have not lived today until you have done something for someone who can never repay you. 
John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, a circuit writer, a circuit preacher, he said this, one of the principal rules of religion is to lose no occasion of serving God. And since he is invisible to our eyes, we are to serve him in our neighbor, which he receives as if done to himself in person, standing visibly before us. Even John Wesley knew we serve others because in doing so, we serve God himself. We serve him. He also said this, do all the good you can by all the means you can in all the places you can at all the times you can to all the people you can as long as you ever can. Oh, that's beautiful. And yet, let's be honest, brothers and sisters, serving is hard. Can we just be honest today as though we weren't honest before? I love it when a preacher says, can I be honest with you? It makes me think, how honest were you before? How truth were you before? Serving can be incredibly difficult. Serving others can be incredibly difficult. If anybody has ever, anybody worked in retail? Yeah. How hard is serving others? How hard is it to serve others? Serving is incredibly hard for a variety of different reasons. It, it, it seems as though those that sometimes we seek to serve, that what they perceive, it started out as a gift, now all of a sudden turns into a right. Right? And, then, you know, maybe we have different expectations of those whom we serve and those whom we are serving, that they think we ought to serve them this way and we are serving them that way. And therefore, there is disagreement even there. It's just hard that sometimes even in serving that we can sometimes, unbeknownst to us, take on someone else's problems as our very own instead of the difference between helping to bear the burden instead of owning the burden. And finally, let's just be honest, serving can be incredibly inconvenient. It messes with your schedule. It messes with my schedule. I have things I like to do. I have a plan. Right? For those of you who know me, I like things structured. I like to know when things are happening, who they're happening with, and why. And sometimes serving breaks through all of that stuff, and you've got to drop what you are doing to go and help someone. I'll never forget in Wisconsin when I was serving a church there, it was an incredibly bitterly cold day. It was sunny out, but the temperature was probably minus 10 with the wind chill, minus 25. And there was a car that had pulled into our church parking lot and they had a flat tire. And so I, I went out there to help them change that flat. It was so cold, so cold out. It was so hard to change. Have you ever tried to turn lug nuts when it's minus 25? <laughs> Nothing works. Nothing works well in those temperatures. And I remember we got the tire on and everything else, and the tire started hissing, the spare tire. And the guy looked at me and says, what should I do? And I said, get in your car now and drive right down. There's a, there's a service station right down. You've got to do it right now, though, before that thing goes flat, because there's nothing else I can do. Serving is inconvenient. Serving is incredibly inconvenient. And yet, we know as Christians, this is what we are called to do. So here's the question for us today that we're going to look at, and it's this. What does it take to serve others well. What does it take to serve others well? To help answer this question, we are going to look at 1 Peter chapter 4. 
And we're going to look at the first 11 verses of chapter 4 in 1 Peter. And what I find so just great about this passage that we're going to look at today is that the context in which Peter is writing to these Christians is that these Christians that whom he's writing to, is probably both Jewish and Gentile Christians, that because of the persecution, particularly in Jerusalem, they have now been scattered around the Roman Empire, and he's now writing to these Christians and these Christians particularly around the area of Turkey, and he is writing to them to encourage them because it is incredibly difficult to be a follower of Jesus when you are being persecuted. And what is so interesting is what Peter shares to help them be encouraged. And I think, my hope is that as we look at this passage, is that we will find in this passage what it might look like for us to serve others really, really well. That is my hope. And there are three things, I think, that in this passage that it shares about how we can serve others really, really well. And the first one is this. It's look constantly to Jesus. Let me flesh that out, but I'm going to read for you the first five verses of 1 Peter chapter 4. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because the one who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human lusts, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of indecent behavior, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drunken parties, and wanton idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excesses of debauchery, and they slander you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Here is what I find so fascinating about what Peter says. Peter says, guess what? If you want to serve others well, if you want to continue in Jesus, look to Jesus. And, but not just look to him, look at the life that Jesus lived. Look at the way that Jesus lived. Look what he did and, 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 and see what, how he responded to things. Because here's the key, and Jesus himself said this. If the world hates me, Jesus said, guess what? They're going to hate you. They're going to hate you. I want to be really honest with you. I've been honest before. I've shared this before, I'll share it again. Brothers and sisters, following Jesus doesn't guarantee a life of serenity. It does not guarantee you a life of no issues or problems whatsoever. It doesn't guarantee you a life that you can wake up every morning and be like, ah, it's good to be a follower of Jesus. I've got no problems in my life. I'm financially secure. Everyone loves me and I love everyone else. There is not a single thing that has been done to me today and there's not a single thing I've done to anybody else. Oh, life is just great because Jesus is here and it is wonderful and easy and I'm being pampered and it's wonderful. That is not the life Jesus said we would have most likely. If you have that kind of life, God bless you. You ought to be thanking Jesus every single, not day, not our, every single second. Every single second. Jesus laid it out and said, hey, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. If my life is hard and was hard, it's going to be hard for you as well. What do I mean when I say look at Jesus? And Peter says this, is 
look at how Christ suffered in the flesh and arm yourselves also with the same purpose. If Jesus suffered, you're going to suffer. If Jesus had it hard, you're going to probably, most likely, have it hard. Jesus came and took sin onto him. Jesus came and took all of that stuff that we should have been punished for onto himself. Here's what it didn't erase completely. It didn't erase the fact that there is still hardship. It didn't erase the fact that there is still suffering. It didn't erase the fact that there will still be persecution. That is still there. That is still there. But what it does mean is that we can look to Jesus' life and know that if Jesus had it hard, we should not be surprised that we too will have it hard. That we also need to look to Jesus' life and see that if he served others, that we too also need to serve others. And here's another reason why. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 says this, Therefore, since we also have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, do you know that right now, believe it or not, brothers and sisters, there's a great cloud of witnesses that surround us. Those brothers and sisters who have gone before us, who are now in the presence of Jesus, whom we can look to and be inspired by and say, if they made it, we can make it. If they did it, we can do it too. That great cloud of witnesses that, that is... That is surrounding us, encouraging us. Jesus says this, or the writer of Hebrews says this, therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let's rid ourselves of every obstacle and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance. You get that, brothers and sisters? What kind of race are we in? Oh, long race. By the way, we are all marathon runners. There are some who just love to do it for the fun of it. but we are all marathon runners. This life we're in, this, we're in for the long haul. This is not a sprint. This is not a sprint. This is a long, long run. And I don't know about you, but I do run for exercise, uh, only exercise. Um, I don't like to run necessarily, but I do it. It's the best form I've found for exercise for me. Um, but I'll be honest with you, when I'm on that treadmill or outside running or whatever else, oh, there are times I just... You ever find that you just want to, okay, I'm going to run walk. I'm going to run walk. You know, get in there and get a real fast run in or walk in, making, you know, thinking that you're actually running. I get that. Sometimes that's the kind of race. Sometimes you got to just run walk. Then you get back to running again because this is hard. We need to run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking only to whom? Jesus, the originator and perfecter of the faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We are in a race. We are in a tough world. And we are called to serve people who are just as broken as we are. And that's really tough. There were people who rejected Jesus. There were people, perhaps the most, one of the famous stories that I just, even to this day, it's just troubling to me. I mean, he feeds 5,000 men. Doesn't include the women and children. We probably think if you included them, 10, maybe 15 plus thousand. 
I mean, it's just an amazing miracle with just a couple of loaves of bread and some fish. And he feeds them, and people are eating, and there's even stuff left over. It's an amazing miracle, right? And people, you would think, are just hooked on this, and they just love Jesus. And then Jesus begins to teach them, and then what happens as a result of him teaching them? They begin to fall away. They say, yeah, this is too hard. We love the bread and fish thing. The teaching thing we'll do without. And at the end, all he has left are the 12 disciples. And he turns to them and says, are you going to leave me as well? And it's Peter who says, yeah, to whom are we going to go to, Jesus? We have given everything to you. We're here. I mean, talk about the most successful and yet the most failed evangelistic moment there right? It's hard. Jesus's life is our life. His way is our way. And guess what? We look to Jesus in two very specific ways. Two very specific ways that we look and we learn and we understand this. One is the Bible, without a doubt. We've got to read the scriptures. We look to Jesus by what the scriptures tell us. We look to Jesus. And here's another one. We look to the church. We look to the church. Because guess what? Whether or not you believe this, all of us reflect God's image. We are image bearers of who God is. We look to each other. That's so, so important. We need to look to Jesus. Constantly look to Jesus. Constantly look to Jesus. Now here's the second thing. We need to listen thoroughly to the gospel message. We need to listen thoroughly to the gospel message. Verses 6 through 7 of 1 Peter 4 says this, For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as people, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. We need, to be, we need to be reminded, we need to listen to the gospel message. You know what the gospel message is? It's simply this. Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus won. W-O-N. Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus won. It's all about Jesus. The gospel message is not about us. The gospel message is all about Jesus Jesus came, he died, and he won. And what I think is so awesome is that the tomb is empty. He is alive. He is alive. April 17th, we're going to celebrate Easter. Hard to believe. It's coming around the corner, and we're gearing up for it. I'm going to let you into a little bit of what I'm going to preach about, because by that time, you're going to forget everything I've shared, so I can say it again. Man, I mean, here's the thing. I heard one preacher say this, and it's so true. You can go to any other tomb of other religions and their bodies are still there. Muhammad is still in his grave. The founder of Confucianism is still in his grave. All of these guys who created these religions, they're still there. Go to the tomb of Jesus and what do you find? Empty. Empty. He's alive. He is alive. There is, he has conquered sin and death. He has done it all. He is alive. The worst thing, and I shared a little bit about this last week, is to see a Christian who isn't alive. Right? 
To see, I mean, this is a glorious moment. I'll never forget, I was at a graduation. It was not mine. But I was at a, a graduation, I just was watching these students coming up and get their diplomas, right? And you would think it was a funeral. I mean, they just did a lot of hard work to get, you know, to get their diplomas and to graduate. And you see these students come up there and they're... Right? I think that's sometimes how maybe we as Christians sometimes may behave is that, my word, Jesus is alive. We have his spirit in us. And all we do sometimes is we walk around sometimes and we come on church on Sunday. Oh, man, come on. Jesus is alive. And you know why he did this? You know why he came? Do you know why he died? And you know why he wins? Because he's the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. But he also did it because you and I are worthy. I want you to say this with me, brothers and sisters. I am worthy. Now, I want you to turn to your neighbor and say to them, you are worthy. Do you believe it? Then start living like it. Start living like it. Every single one of you is worthy because Jesus died for you. What I love about Easter is that it doesn't end at the cross. By the way, just a little nitpicking. I don't like to see any symbol of the cross on Easter. That's the one day, in my opinion, we shouldn't see the cross. The cross ended on Good Friday. We've got the empty tomb. That's what I want to see. That's what I want to see. I, never, I don't know about you, I never saw, I never could think of anything so, that was so empty to be so fulfilling. We have one. We're going to build an empty tomb on Easter. You'll see it. You'll see it. Our creative team, they are creative. They're somewhat freaks. Creative freaks, but there are freaks. And they tend to let their freak flags fly on Easter. Okay? Oh, it's going to be beautiful. It, the, the Christian life, Jesus is alive. That's the gospel message. That is the gospel message. And I don't know about you, but to those Christians that Peter was writing to who are suffering, I, I think that had to be an incredible encouragement. And to those of us who are here to call to serve each other because we believe you are worthy, that ought to be an enormous motivation for us to do that. You are worthy to be served because Jesus is alive. You are worthy to be served because Jesus died for you. You are worthy. You are worthy. And you are worthy. You are worthy. We have to hear this gospel message over and over and over and over and over again. I don't know about you, but it should never get tiring. Brothers and sisters, I pray that we never get to the place of saying the gospel message. I've heard that before. Instead, we should be like, yeah, bring it on. I want to hear it again. Put that on repeat. Put that on repeat. Jesus is alive. That's the gospel message. The gospel message. And I love it. I think of and I, in, in, in the transfiguration, which was a, a beautiful story in which Jesus takes Peter, James, and John 
with him. And in the midst of that, he is transformed in this beautiful, glowing, white-robed person who is just emanating the glory of God. And for a brief moment, these three guys can see Jesus for who he really is. And not only that, but then all of a sudden, Elijah shows up on one side and Moses on the other. And they began, Jesus begins to talk with these guys. And the disciples, you have to understand, as Jewish men, would have been like, oh, this is my Graceland. This is, this is it. Kill me now. There's no other reason for me to live. I've got Moses, Elijah, and Jesus right here. No wonder Peter in the midst of it says, oh, I've got an idea, Lord. Let's build some homes up here. Tiny homes. We'll build tiny homes. We can live off the land. Right? We can live off the land and we can do this. And Peter is going on and on and on. And all of a sudden, I mean, to a Jewish guy and to a Jewish person, seeing Elijah and Moses with Jesus, Jesus is now the fulfillment of all the prophets and the law. That's what that signifies. Elijah was known as the chief of the prophets and Moses was known as the carrier of the law. With those two guys showing up, it was now plain to see he is the fulfillment of all the prophets and the law. It's Jesus. It has always been about Jesus, and it will always be about Jesus. And Peter wants to love and live in the moment. So let's build some homes. And he's doing this, and finally God breaks in. And he says, essentially, he says, um, yeah, uh, this is my beloved son, God says, with whom I'm well pleased. And he ends with this, listen to him. Be in a posture of receiving. Be in a posture of actually accepting with open hands. By the way, brothers and sisters, you want to try a new way of praying? I want to encourage you this way. I do this sometimes, not all the time. I know sometimes we go like this to pray, right? We close our eyes. And sometimes, have you ever noticed a person who keeps their eyes open during the prayer? Right? Why, are you, why do you have your eyes open? Right? Kind of thing. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with keeping your eyes open. I mean, we sometimes look at that, that person's not really praying, their eyes aren't closed. Well, neither are yours. <laughs> right? But we sometimes, we pray like this, and this is a wonderful way to pray. Can I encourage you sometimes? Pray like this. Have your, have your hands open. Be in that posture of receiving. Father, speak to me. Speak to me. He speaks primarily through his word, but he also speaks through others, through events. He speaks in a still, small voice. I hope that we can come to him with a posture of openness to receive what it is he wants to share with us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 through 25 says this, For indeed, Jews ask for signs. Let us know of the Messiah here. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? If so, give us a sign that you're the Messiah. And the Greeks, oh, the Greeks search for wisdom. We want truth. We want, we want that. But we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, it's a stumbling block. And to Gentiles, it's foolishness. You want your sign? Here's your sign. You want your wisdom? Here's your wisdom. Makes no sense. Wait, 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 wait a minute. In order to be great, you have to be small? In order to be first, you have to be last? That makes no sense. That's the wisdom of God. It goes on and says this, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than mankind and the weakness of God is stronger than mankind. It's beautiful. 
We need to listen thoughtfully to the gospel message. And by the way, myself and others who have the wonderful, awesome responsibility of preaching, we need to preach the gospel message. The world needs to hear it. They need to hear it, and so do we. Even still, as followers of Jesus, need to hear it. Finally, here's the last one. In order to, I think, serve others really well, we need to, of course, look constantly to Jesus, listen thoughtfully to the gospel message, and finally, when we do those things, I think the last one is possible. Love others enthusiastically. Love others enthusiastically. End of the last few verses says this in First Peter, beginning with verse 8. Above all, Peter writes, keep fervent in your love for one another. By the way, that word love is agape. And by the way, you rarely find that word outside of the scriptures. It is almost exclusively used in the scriptures. That's how unique that word is and that kind of love is. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. I'll be honest with you. You know what hospitality is? And I love this. Hospitality is about the other person. It's not, not about us. So let me give you an idea of what I, what I mean by this. Um, I, I'm, I, I love a clean house. 